0: But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked in the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thanks, Carrie. Well, what we've been doing for the past Few weeks, uh, really. This whole spring, leading up till Easter, is we're looking at these questions that Jesus asks throughout his ministry. If you were to read through the Gospels, different uh, people have totaled up how many questions he actually asks. But uh, one one book that I came across said that he asks around 307 questions, which is a lot of questions in just a short amount of you know space. And it raises the question, why is he asking all these questions? Because when you and I ask each other questions, we're typically looking for information. You have these like ridiculous things that pop in your head. And you're like, OK, what, what was the name of the album that Bohemian Rhapsody was on? Or you're thinking, OK, what was the name of the guy that played the cop in the movie Die Hard? And you, know, you have these questions. And then you run to Google to get the answer. And uh, so maybe that's it. Maybe Jesus is just asking a bunch of questions because he don't have Google, and he's just curious about whatever he's thinking about. But that's not what's going on. He's not asking questions so that he can get information. He's not asking questions for his sake. He's asking questions for our sake, for the the sake of whoever he's talking to. Because he's like a... um, He's like a good therapist who asks a question in such a way that gets you to think about something in a new way, to get you to reflect and to see it from a new angle. And so that's what that's what we've been doing and the question that he asks in our passage this morning, you can find it in verse 31. He says, "Why did you doubt?" Why did you doubt? He asked that question to one of his closest friends, one of his disciples named Peter. Who is this? This is a man that has given up his whole life to follow Jesus. He loves Jesus. He's all in on Jesus, and yet this story exposes uh, he still doubts. He still he still he still doesn't fully trust Jesus. Uh, the, the, uh, the late comedian Norm Macdonald. Uh, was interviewed a number of years ago by another comedian named Mark Marin, and they have a fascinating conversation. You can hear this whole conversation, uh, but towards the end of this, you know, hour-plus-long interview, they start talking about faith, and it's really fascinating. I'm, I want to read you just a, a little slice of this conversation that they had, and I, I will be editing this. Um, For the sake of the kids in the room. And um, so here's (laughs) here's how Norm begins. He says, you know, I read a lot, and every great novel I read, it comes down to faith. Faith is the only salvation, but I don't know how to get it. I I don't know how to just suddenly believe. And the other guy, Mark Maron, says, yeah, like, surrender. And he's like, yeah, I don't know how to do that. Norm says, I'm too stupid or proud or pretend that I'm smart, probably afraid. I mean, to surrender, it's hard. It's just extremely hard to keep believing. It's really hard because it's the hardest thing to believe, and I think I'm not deep enough. And so Mark Marin hears him and he tries to interject to comfort him. He says, Yeah, I don't know if that's true. I think that just by nature of the fact that you're a comedian and part of the way that you understand things is you just cut through nonsense. You call out nonsense on just about anything in a very funny way. So when you're sitting here trying to stay in a place of faith and the sort of Jesus thing or whatever you're choosing to hang that faith on, there's going to be a part of you that thinks, this is nonsense. And Norm says, yeah, there is. And they both kind of laugh about that. And I bring that up because, I, you know, we don't ever assume that everybody in this room identifies as a Christian, We never assume that anybody at Redeemer all believes the same thing. And yet for those of us who do claim to follow Jesus, I wonder if you resonate with that, that sense of I do believe, and yet there's another part of me uh, that doesn't believe. I believe and I don't at the same time. And, you know, I resonate with that. And I'm sure you resonate with that. But I bring that up because uh, Peter and the disciples in this story, they get exposed for that very reality. They believe and they don't believe. They um, trust and they don't trust. And yet by the end of the story, something has shifted. Something happens inside of them. Because if you notice at the end, verse 33, it says that they worshiped him. And they said, truly, you are the son of God which is a lofty thing to say about another human being. This is the, in fact, this is the only time in the Gospel of Matthew that the disciples use this language about Jesus. So they have discovered something as a result of this story, and I want to try to show you what they've discovered. Two things. They have discovered the divine power of Jesus and the compassionate heart of Jesus. And I think as we look at this, we can discover that too. So let's look at that. Uh, let's look at each of those one at a time. The divine power of Jesus and the compassionate heart of Jesus. First, the divine power. This story takes place right after the famous feeding of the 5,000 story. Jesus has been teaching all day. There's this giant crowd. He feeds them. And as it says in verse 22, he, uh, it's getting late. He, he tells the disciples, hey, go get in a boat. I want you to go on the other side of this lake. I'm going to dismiss the crowds. And then in verse 23, it says that he goes up on a mountainside to pray by himself. So you've got the disciples on the water in the boat. You've got Jesus by himself. And it says in verse 24 that as they're rowing, the, the boat is beaten by the waves. They're, they're going against a crosswind. And so they're not making any headway. And in fact, it says in verse 25 that this is the fourth watch of the night which doesn't really mean anything to you and to me, but I looked it up and it says uh, that that's between 3 and 6 a.m. So just picture this moment. Here are these disciples. It's the middle of the night. They're in the middle of the lake. They've been rowing for hours, not making any progress. The wind is going against them. And, and you know, they've been, in, uh, they've been in mega storms before where it's threatened their lives. This is not a life-threatening moment. It's just exhausting. They're just over it. They're just done. I want this to end. We want to get to the other side. We've been doing this forever. They're, they're, they're worn out. This is challenging. It's difficult. They're just struggling, and it's just frustrating. And then it says in verse 25 that during the fourth night, watch of the night, sorry, he came to them walking on the sea. But Jesus is walking on top of the water out towards them. And it says in verse 26 that they see this and are terrified because they think a ghost is coming after them. Now, I think this is really important because when, when you and I read stories like this, I think it's easy for us to say, I don't really know what I think about this. Jesus walking on water, this feels a little far-fetched. This, feels a, this is a big pill to swallow. And it's easy to think about these people back then in Bible times and to think, well, you know, they, were, they believed this kind of stuff. They, were, you know, they weren't as scientifically advanced as we are. They lived in a world where they just believed in miracles and angels and demons under every rock, and that's every, every supernatural explanation for everything that's happened in their world. And so it's, it's easy for us to develop a little bit of a chronological snobbery, where we we're like we're, we're smarter than they are. These are naive, pre-scientific idiots. We wouldn't believe this kind of stuff. But here's what I want you to see: they don't believe this either. When they see what this is, what, what is happening, the most likely explanation that goes off in their head is this is a ghost, because human beings don't walk on water then either. <laughs> they don't. They're not quick to just believe this. The most likely explanation in their mind is. Okay, this is not a human being. This has to be a ghost or something. I don't know what's going on. But okay, even if you grant that Jesus is walking on top of the water, I think the bigger question is why? Because this is a very strange moment in the Bible. If you, if you look through all of the gospel stories, whenever Jesus does a miracle or something, it's always to help somebody else. Feeding the 5,000. Healing the sick, raising the dead. It's always others oriented. And now he's just walking around on the water. It feels like he's just flexing. It feels like he's like, hey, look, I can do cool stuff. Is that what's going on? No. I think what's going on is that he is wanting to reveal something very specific to the disciples. And he's wanting to reveal something about himself to us as well. And it's this. That he's a God. That in this moment, what he's doing is he's not just demonstrating that he has great power. He's claiming to have divine power. And here's where I get that from. Uh, the sea is a very important uh, reality, especially in the mind of an ancient Near Eastern person. If you go back 2,000 years ago and try to put yourself in the mind of somebody from the ancient Near East, the sea represented everything that was ominous and sinister in the world. It's chaotic. It is, uh, it's untamable, it's uncontrollable, it's powerful, it represents chaos and turmoil and death. And so when you have um, this force of water that is so vast and it's so deep, you realize, okay, it doesn't matter how smart I am, it, does not, no, it doesn't matter how, how strong I am, it doesn't matter how advanced humanity gets, the sea always wins. tsunamis, hurricanes, tidal waves, infinitely stronger than we are. When I was uh, about 10 or 11 years old, my family, we went on a uh, vacation to the beach. And I remember as a little kid, one day, beautiful, sunny day, going out to play in the waves, as kids are wont to do. And I go out there, I'm splashing the waves, I'm going out farther and farther and farther. And I'm, I'm, I'm getting right to the point where I can still touch the sand on my tippy toes. I can feel the sand, the waves are coming, having a great time. And one wave comes in and I can no longer feel the sand uh, under my feet. And so I start swimming back towards the land to get my feet underneath me and, and the undertow pulls me back out and I can't feel the, can't feel the uh, ground underneath me. And so I swim out harder and it pulls me back in. And I'm, you know, at this point, after a while, you're, you're treading water and the waves are coming over my head and I'm trying to keep my head above water, and, I, and my feet aren't on the ground, and I'm, and I'm caught in this riptide. And, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't know as a 10, 12-year-old, however old I was, you're supposed to swim that way, you know, perpendicular to the beach. I just kept trying to swim this way, and it just was, it just kept pulling me out and out and out. And eventually, I don't know how, maybe the wind kind of pulled me out of the current, but I, I somehow got out of it. I was able to get my feet underneath me. By the time I got to the land, dry land, I basically just collapsed in exhaustion and and really, from that time on, up till this point i have I have learned and gained a newfound respect for the ocean. It is stronger than me, it is bigger than me and 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 that's what's going on in the the mind of these people, these disciples, when when they think of the sea, they think this is an untamable, wild, unpredictable force, and no human being can tame it. And the Bible says that's true except one. There is one being that can control and tame the sea, and it's the very one who made it and so all throughout the Bible, you have this picture that God is the only one who has the power to tame the sea, to tame the chaos of the sea. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, you have the Exodus story. The people of Israel, that are enslaved in Egypt, and God rescues them out, and they're running from Pharaoh and from his army, and they hit a dead end up against the sea. And Pharaoh's army has come chasing after them, and they're closing in, and they've got nowhere to go. And so what does the Lord do? He opens up the sea and creates this dry path, for them to go through. Human ingenuity couldn't do that. God does that. Then you have Isaiah 50 verse 2 that says, behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Job 26 verse 12 says, by his power, he stilled the sea. Psalm 29 says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The Lord since sits enthroned over the flood. This is why when you get to the very end of the Bible, you get this uh, symbolic picture of what the restored, renewed world looks like. And here's how Revelation 21 verse 1 puts it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, beach people hear that and think, that sounds depressing. No sea, no beach, no 30A, no Myrtle Beach, whatever spot you go to. And that's not what it's saying. It's saying that all that the sea represents will be removed. All the chaos, all the turmoil, all the death, all the destruction, that's removed from this new world. And so here you have Jesus in this moment, and he's over the water. He's standing on it. He has authority over it. He's walking over the chaos. This is not just a claim of, I got great power. This is a claim of him saying, I have divine power. I am God in the flesh. In a case that wasn't crystal clear, listen to what he says in verse 27. These disciples are freaked out. They think they're looking at a ghost. And look at what he says. He says, take heart, it is I. It sounds very Shakespearean, but what he says in the actual language is, Take heart, I am. Now, why is that significant? That's the very name that God announced for himself back in Exodus. If you might remember, uh, Moses has this experience with God at the burning bush. God says to Moses, Hey, I want you to go and confront Pharaoh Tell him, let my people go. And Moses says, "Uh, I've got some questions about that, but who are you? Who should I say is sending me? And God says, Tell him, I am sent to you. Tell him, I am being itself. That's who I am. So when Jesus says, Take heart, I am, he's not saying, Hey, it's okay, I'm here. He's saying, It's okay, I'm God. Now, I know this, is, um, this raises all kinds of questions to think about, okay, uh, Jesus claiming to be God, walking on water, what do you do with this? this? A million questions get raised. The one question that I think is the most obvious from this, from this story is, okay, if that's true, if Jesus really is this powerful, I am creator and sustainer of the universe, made the sea and all that is in it, if that's who he really is, why would he not make life easier for his friends? I mean, they are struggling, challenged. This is, they're, they're in an extremely difficult spot. If he's so powerful, why not just make it go away? Which is a form of the question, you kind know, of the age-old question of, okay, if God is good and he's all-powerful, why would he allow evil and pain and suffering and death into the world? which, of course, is a massive question, and we don't have time to get to the bottom of it. And even if, if we had all the time in the world, I don't think we could really get to the bottom of it. But at least from this story, let's just take a passing stab at it. It seems to me that Jesus wants more than just to make our lives easier. He's got other priorities, and he's got other agendas than just to simply make our lives easy. Just removing difficulty. It seems the higher priority for him is that we would know who he really is. That maybe the main priority is not that he gets us through life without difficulty, but that we go through life actually knowing who he is. And I think this is one of the reasons why it's so easy to miss because it's so e- we're just hardwired into believing if there is a God, And if he loves me, then my problems wouldn't exist. If God exists, difficulty in my life wouldn't. If that's true, if he's there, if he's powerful, if he loves me, then why would my life have to be so difficult? Why does it feel like it's such an uphill climb all the time? It's constant struggle, and it's just easy to just write the whole thing off because of the difficulty. But could it be that the very presence of difficulty is part of what his greater agenda is, that he allows difficulty, challenge, frustrating circumstances to come into our life so that we might actually figure out who he is in the midst of them. But okay, let me play devil's advocate for just a second with myself. Um, Just the exposure to sheer power doesn't necessarily activate worship. You know what I'm saying? Like if, if, if you were at the zoo and you, God forbid, uh, fell into the enclosure of the silverback gorilla you know, exhibit and you are face-to-face with unbridled, terrifying power, that would activate fear in you. That would activate awe in you. You would have a very healthy respect for the silverback gorillas. That would not necessarily activate love in you. That wouldn't translate into adoration. If, if, if all you had in this story was Jesus walking on the water and saying, I'm Yahweh, I am being itself, that would provoke fear. That would provoke awe, healthy respect. But it wouldn't provoke verse 33. Worship. You are truly the son of God. So something else is happening here. There's more to this story. Jesus is revealing not only his divine power, but the other thing that he, that's going on here is he's also revealing his compassionate heart. So let's look at that quickly. Uh, where do we see his compassionate heart here? This is, um, this is where the story, which is already strange, starts getting even stranger. Because when Jesus is approaching the boat on the water, somehow this activates Courage in Peter, and he and he asks in verse twenty eight, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And I read a bunch of different commentators and um, uh, scholars on this, and everyone's kind of confused on why Peter asks this question. They're like, okay, is he asking this question because he's testing Jesus? Is that really you? Is he asking this question because he wants in on this awesome power Jesus has? He wants to participate in it? Is he asking this question from this kind of icky place in his heart where he doesn't really understand his own limitations as a human being and he just wants to kind of pretend like he's God for a second? We don't know. It's a strange question. What's even stranger is that Jesus says, come on, let's do it. And so Peter gets out of the boat and Peter starts walking on the water towards Jesus. And then look at verse 30. It says, when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he started to sink. We don't really know why he starts sinking. We're just told that he starts sinking and that he's afraid. So here's his body, and it starts submerging into dark and angry water, and he screams, Lord, save me. Lord, save him. He's so desperate. He cries out thinking, I'm about to die. I am about to drown right here on the spot. And, and look at verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. Now, that is a glorious sentence. Think about the word immediately. Jesus instantly responds without any hesitation He doesn't let Peter panic for one second longer. Peter cries out, bam, grabs him, quick to grab him, quick to save him. And in fact, listen how personal the details are. It says that he reached out his hand, and Jesus took hold of him. Peter's not flailing and grabbing onto, like, life preservers that are being thrown out to him. Peter is not saving himself in this moment. He is 100% being acted upon. And Jesus reaches out with his hand and grabs him and pulls him up and brings him to safety. And so what you have in this story is, is you see ultimate power, but it's not power that exists just to impress you. It's power that exists to save you, to do for you what you can't do for yourself. You see omnipotence, but it's it's omnipotence that's mixed with Compassion and gentleness and tenderness, and and a heart that wants to love and save and rescue. And so there's this um, tension in the story, I think, because when you read through it, you see on the one hand that Jesus does not always rescue us from difficulty, He allows challenging, frustrating, arduous, exhausting, Things to happen in our life. But he will pull you from death when you cry out to him. What I think is so fascinating about this story is that when you zoom out and you see the rest of the story as a whole, Peter is not the only one that experiences sinking. Later in the very Gospels, uh, Jesus himself is going to sink into death on the cross, it's like this tidal wave of sin and judgment and death itself consumes him. And he drops into the water and he sinks all the way down. And in fact, when he's on the cross in Matthew chapter 27, he, just like Peter, he looks up to God and he cries out for help. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But unlike Peter, he gets no response There's no immediate God the Father reaching down and pulling him up and rescuing him. God does nothing. And Jesus submerges into death and perishes. Jesus knows what it is like to look to God, cry out for help, and to receive silence, to get no response, which raises this question, okay, why in the world would God the Father not want to rescue God the Son? And it's because God the Son is acting as our substitute. Jesus is drowning in the waters because that's the only way that you and I might be rescued from them. Jesus is being cast out into the chaos of the sea because that is the only way that you and I might be immediately pulled from it. Jesus is experiencing the silence of God so that you and I might experience the immediate response of God. What's so amazing about this story is here are these group of disciples and they come to worship him. They say, whoa, truly this is the son of God. But they had no idea the links and the depths that Jesus would go to to actually save them. They saw his power. They saw his compassion because he pulled up one of their friends from drowning in one little moment. But they had no idea the links that he was gonna go to to actually save them from ultimate death. And that was enough to get them to say, Truly, you are the Son of God. When you and I hear that question, okay, why do you doubt? I wonder how you answer that in your own head. Why do we doubt? I think if we're honest, we would say, because we don't trust you. We don't believe this stuff. I mean, we do. Some of us do. And then at the same time, we don't. And so it's like this passage is saying, okay, the invitation then is to fix your eyes on his divine power and his compassionate heart. Focus your eyes on the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus until something in your heart starts to get activated where you begin to say, okay, truly you're the son of God, where fear or unbelief actually translates into worship, it's only in the gospel do you see his power and his compassion on full HD, 3D display. And as you focus that on that, that's when your heart can begin to say, Lord, I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. I do believe and I do doubt. But my belief is beginning to grow and my doubts are beginning to shrink. And that only happens when you see his power and his compassion in the gospel. Well, that's um, an invitation for you and for me this morning. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, I do pray that you'd give us eyes to see your power and your compassion. Father, if we're honest, we don't trust you. We trust ourselves. We trust what we can see. We trust what's in front of us. And yet I pray that you would so overwhelm us with your beauty, with your compassion, with your kindness, with your love and your mercy that we might find new parts of our heart crying out, okay, you are truly the son of God. You actually care about me in my despair. Would that move us to worship in new ways? And we pray all of this in Jesus' name.